Well, welcome. This is August the 11th, the second hour lecture. The title of the lecture is Reality and Fantasy. My name is George McCurdy, and I hope to avoid fantasy and steer you all into reality in some form or fashion. Now, uh, Gard asked an interesting question that got me thinking, and this is not part of my lecture, but I don't know how you all picture the word doctrine. Uh, I, when I first heard the word doctrine, it almost reminded me of castor oil. Or my grandmother, when I was growing up, had this philosophy, spring house cleaning of the body amounted to sulfur and molasses. Any of you ever have that? You put the sulfur in the mouth and the molasses and the sulfur sticks to the upper roof of your mouth. It was awful. I couldn't stand it. Well, doctrine often, but I have come where, for me, the word doctrine has taken on a very charming, helpful thing. And I just wanted to share them, and then I'll go into to my talk. For me, doctrine means that which points the way. Uh, I really appreciate doctrine, and it steers me to think about certain topics. Now, some of the topics in doctrine are, have a shortcut or short route. You know, if you want to get point A to point B, here's what you do. Some of the doctrine takes me on a beautiful scenic route where it enlarges my thinking, it introduces me to the landscape and other ideas. So doctrine has a way of pointing out, a, or it points out a new route, one that I didn't even know about. Doctrine has the capacity of my GPS. It'll warn me that there's a detour ahead. Uh, have you had that little voice that says the route you have picked has moderate traffic on it? I mean, a little bit of thing. And, and also, doctrine will tell me this is going to be a toll road, or if you don't want to pay the toll, uh, here's a uh, suggested uh, a toll-free route. Uh, my GPS does that as well. So here we've gathered together that to take this topic of reality and fantasy, and we're going to use some doctrine. Okay, let's begin with this. In the preface to Apocalypse Revealed, we have these words written. The whole of heaven is founded upon a just. Now that word just means correct. So the whole of heaven is founded about, upon a correct idea of God. And the, the whole church on earth, and in general all religions, require a correct idea of a God. Since that idea is what provides conjunction, light, wisdom, and eternal happiness. So we have gathered here, in a sense, to do uh, a preparation and thinking about getting a correct idea of God. Some little helpful thought that we can carry with us and have sort of a, an epiphany occur once in a while where something comes up, a title comes up, and we have a flashback where we think about different things. Our mental life, we're told in the writings, is a between heaven and hell. And we are influenced by these two sources. 
Now, the question comes that we're taught is we get to decide often which we're going to listen to, which we're going to value. So my whole lecture is I have gone through the writings and I have found all kinds of things that are suggestions about if you want to pursue the life of reality, here's what you do. If you want to avoid the life of spiritual fantasy, here's what you do or here's what you don't do. But it leaves us in the freedom to choose which of these two influences we're going to want to choose to give our loyalty to. Heaven is presented as we need to have an internal acknowledgement of the Lord, His laws, His order, doing the things that are going to help us to find the real and to resist or stay away from the things that are unreal. Now, when I was a child, one of the songs I loved to sing was the old song, Trust and Obey. Any of you remember that song? I, I will just give the, the first uh, uh, verse. Trust and obey, or no, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who trust and obey. So here we are between these two worlds, and the issue is which of these, heaven or hell, are we going to walk with? So uh, the Lord wants to give us freedom, but the writings quickly uh, warn us, hell has no intention whatsoever of shedding light on our way or helping us. They want to do the following thing. They want to interrupt. They want us to learn how to deny the Lord and His truth. They want to fill us with errors. And they want to help us make poor decisions. I mean, that's their agenda. They want to destroy what is real. And they want to substitute what is unreal. Now, Apocalypse Revealed, and this is where I want the pictures that I'm about to read to be sort of etched on your thinking for just a little bit. I don't want them to make you nervous or upset, but I just don't want to cast these pictures. Apocalypse Revealed gives us this image between what heaven has on its agenda and what hell. It says, hell has as its agenda to tell us that what it's about to give us is the most fastidious, well-prepared dinner that one could ever eat. I mean, isn't that a kind of a, think about that. Hell wants to say, hey, I got the best meal for you. It's the most delicious. It's the most healthy. And then all of a sudden, Apocalypse Revealed says, the Lord opened my eyes to see that what it really was is the most disgusting meal one could ever want to have. I didn't make that up. And continuing, it says, those who wanted to be famous, those that wanted to prove the how erudite they are, are see, and, and it was just all about me, myself, and I. It was not about helping somebody. It says, they are seen as people who love to build houses. And after they build this house, they point at its magnificence. And then the frustration of his, the day later, 
it all falls apart. And why? Because the house they built had no co cohesion. Is that kind of a wonderful thing? Stay away from the, uh, the uh, fantasy of hell because they're going to tell you, oh, we're going to build this most magnificent thing to live in, and it falls apart the next day. And if you like that one, how about this one? Those who pride themselves with how educated they are, how many books they have written, how many honors they have gained, waddle in abstractions, obfuscations. Now, the writings don't use that word, but have, uh, I once had a little chart, and I wish I had brought it. It's a bunch of words, you know, a whole list of words, and it says, for fun, just go through and pick this word, pick this word, pick this word, put it into a sentence. You understand each individual word, but when you put them together, it doesn't make a lick of sense. Hell, with its fantasy, loves to obfuscate. They read in their little caves at night, and as they read and write, their candles keep going off. I mean, I have to smile at this I, I, as I picture this. Here they are in their dingy, stinky, boggy caves, thinking they're in the most magnificent palace. And as they're reading, they have to keep trying to light that candle. Is that frustration? Uh, to me, it, it sounds like frustration. And as they write, within the day, everything they wrote vanishes. Uh, I, I want no part of that. I mean, seriously, do you? I mean, I, I think the writings are trying to get us to say, excuse me, but I want to choose something where I read it has its lasting value and it's going to be a benefit to the Lord, to the neighbor, and to all the things. Those who sought riches in the world and those who were hoarders, and it talks about they are in a little cave, these misers, and they're counting their silver, they're counting their gold, and they're just so happy. And was it real gold? Somebody tell me, what do you think the gold was that they were counting? Fool's gold. How frustrating is that? Here they are in their cave thinking they're absolutely rich and they're counting fool's gold. They live in bogs, uh, quicksand. They, uh, it's putrid water. The stench is overwhelming. Fantasy abounds. Their feelings, they're falling apart. But I think the thing the writings say that is the most sad about them is that instead of it being a happy life that they like to portray that it is, they're ever fearful of being called out. Now, uh, I'd, I'd like, have you ever told a lie? And, and uh, you know, you're, oh, oh yes, that's, and, but there's a little bit of fear in the back of your mind. Any minute someone may come in and tell the story as it really is. Well, those who live in the world of fantasy, hell's fantasy, are constantly fearful they're going to be exposed. And so if you, they go on, to, the writings go on to say, they spend a lot of time in makeup. In other words, putting rouge on uh, to, in order to present themselves as beautiful. Their life is gorgeous. Their life is happy. And it says the Lord lets them get away with that for a while, and then as 
he would always do, he suddenly opens the eyes of those to see what they're really like and their skeletons and, and their uh, lifeless uh, things. So the Lord is always, I think, trying to say, excuse me, but you know, let's balance this thing between what's real and what's not real. And, and of course, the first lecture I had, remember the phrase we had? Only the Lord is. Everything else is not if it seeks to keep them itself away from him. So what you and I are here about, and, and the reason we have a lecture like this, yes, it sounds pretty horrible, portraying what all things fantasy uh, lives with and, and portrays, but it's really here to tell us, please, go for that which is, and do not get fooled and deceived by that which is not. Uh, uh, yes, hell is often portrayed. As, when you were a kid, did you ever play King of the Mountain? You ever play that game? And, and one of the, the tricks is somebody that's up on top, you're always trying to pull them down. Well, hell is a constant game of playing I'm bigger, badder, and uglier than you. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't want any part of it. Uh, one of my favorite minor prophets... And I don't know if any of you know, I, I, uh, there are 11 minor prophets. And so far I've been able to give a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of uh, nine of those minor prophets. The word minor doesn't mean unimportant. It means when you look at all the prophets, they're the shorter prophets. But one of my favorite uh, minor prophets is Haggai. Haggai in, in chapter 1 comes and says to his listeners and his, those who are reading, is it right that, and then listen to what he says, is it right that you plant much, but you harvest little? Is it right that you eat, but what you eat never satisfies you? Have you ever had this natural experience where you're hungry for something and and you, you nibble and it just doesn't quite hit the spot. Is it right that you have a drink, but it never quenches your thirst? Is it right that you put on clothes, but the clothes don't keep you warm? And this one I love, as far as illustration. It says, is it right that you work hard all day and you receive your daily wages and you put your wages in your pocket or in your purse, but there's a hole in the bottom of the purse and there's a hole in the bottom of your pocket. Is it right? Haggai was trying to, again, join in with, this is real, this is unreal. And if you're gonna pursue that which is unreal, you're gonna plant a lot, not reap much, you're going to eat, never quite be satisfied, you're gonna drink and it's not gonna quench your thirst, you're going to put on clothes, and I don't know whether you've ever been somewhere where you've layered clothes and you just can't quite get, uh, be warm. But the one about, do you, is it fair, is it right that you earn wages and you put them in your pocket and, you, and all the money you got, you lose? Uh, in Apocalypse Explained, continuing with what Haggai presented, it says, in, in the world of unreal, the soil of hell is barren. Those who had rank and prestige 
uh, are seen begging and uh, out in lines hoping to get a little piece of bread and a little milk. They're forced to perform uses in hell. Now, I don't know, as, uh, I remember as a child, every once in a while I get sent to my room, pick up the clothes off the floor, and you know, put your room back in order. Uh, that five minutes of picking up clothes, putting, is like forever. <laughs> but do something you love to do and time flies by. Well, hell is forced to do certain things, to perform uses. They're told, you're not going to just sit here, you have to perform a use. So, uh, when I was uh, younger, if I mention the name Paul Harvey, how many of you would put your hand up as knowing who Paul Harvey is? He had a wonderful broadcast where he would say, and now here is the rest of the story. And I would listen to that thing rap, with rapt attention, because he would start out by saying, here's a story you heard, but now I want you to hear the rest of that story. Well, I picture in my writing, or reading, the doctrine is trying to, in every way, show me how to avoid the lunacy of hell. It's going to give me a chance to see this wonderful, scenic, beautiful, interesting route that reality has. And yes, there are warnings. I mean, how many times do I remember as a little kid being told, don't get in a car with a stranger? If somebody says, hey, you want to come and see my puppy? Don't get into the car. Uh, I was told when you get to a street, you look both ways. And I would even do it on a one-way street. Do you ever do that? It's one-way street, you're looking both ways. Uh, but we have multitudinous rules. I even have a new car now. I was telling somebody the other day. The thing I love about new car is it's got one of those things if I begin to lose a concentration I drift over the center line, my wheel shakes. Uh, I've got a thing if I put the right-hand turn signal on, it shows me a picture of what's in the right-hand lane so that I don't have that blind side. If a car passes me and I've got it on cruise control, uh, the, the car cuts the speed back. I mean, rules, wonderful things that are there to help us. So I love doctrine and, and uh, telling me about detours ahead. I want to be a, a, a positive presenter to you this morning. Yes, I'm showing you some uh, sort of sad pictures of what lunacy is in, in hell, what fantasy, but I want to also be a happy guy to tell you that the Lord has some very wonderful plans in store for us. The Lord came into the world, and we've been told specifically He came into the world to take on every single piece of lunacy that fantasy can present. And I tried to picture one time the Lord, each day He fought one, maybe two, but He had to fight them all. And they tried to weave their web of deceit and, and to blind him. And every single trick of the trade they tried, he did not succumb to. And the side note is, uh, I found a passage in the Arcana that said the Lord's greatest temptations came from whom? That's a question. Who do you think the Lord's greatest temptations came from? 
Hell, angels. Angels gave him more trouble. They kept saying, don't go into, oh, please, don't go into the, the natural world. Uh, you know, all that you're going to say to those people, they're not going to listen, they're not going to, and they're going to kill you. Don't go. And it says the Lord fought them and resisted them and came into this world for the specific purpose of loving us and teaching us what's real and what to avoid as unreal. I love that passage. I just, you know, and when the Lord was on the cross as a kid, I heard him say, it is finished. And I took it as he was saying, it's over. Yeah. No, the, the new church and doctrine teaches us the reason he said it is finished was he was announcing to us and to the hells, I have conquered all. And, and I just find that so reassuring that I, he won. He wasn't capitulating, it's over. He was saying, I did it. Hell tried to play every elusive, false trick in the world, and it's finished. I also love that passage in, in, the, in the New Testament where the Lord was going around and everything he did touched a person's eyes and they saw. Uh, this, with saliva. I mean, he touched ears, they heard. A withered arm, he touched. It was a, a little girl died and he came in. She's not dying, she's asleep. At all, but the one that really got to me was when he went to the tomb and called Lazarus out. After how many days was Lazarus in the grave? What did it say? His body stinketh. And he called Lazarus out and Lazarus came out. And the scribes and the Pharisees, instead of saying, wow, I want to follow this man, what was their thinking? We got to kill this guy. And by the way, let's kill Lazarus because we want to remove the evidence. Isn't that like hell? It wants to remove all of the evidence and present us with its stinky, rotten messages it's unappetizing foods, on and on we go. So here we are as thinkers, studiers, and the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to destroy the evidence. I want to implore you uh, to become one who says, I want to present the evidence that the Lord's way is real. So instead, uh, I, I want to now say, you know the rest of the story. The choice that we are being presented with this morning, at least at, I'm hoping that the choice we're being presented, is that uh, we want to make an internal, quiet, non-bragging commitment that I want to pursue isness. I do not want to pursue falsity. Uh, the Lord is, is challenging us. So I, I you know, and thank you uh, for using that phrase, so what? So what? We've just listened to the writings portray all the fantasies, the unrealness of hell, and we've looked at a, uh, a piece of what is and will be to eternity. And so the challenge that I would say, so what? The challenge is, I want to walk away after helping to, to share this, uh, this uh, uh, topic. 
daring myself and hopefully daring you to say I want to become a warrior of reality. I do not want to become a, 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 a lifeless skeleton who uh, is, is pursuing things that will not satisfy. So, the word doctrine, don't let it scare you. Don't let it be uh, viewed by you as castor oil. But have it be something that's well worth pursuing and that it will help us uh, pr uh, be prepared for all the extend extending circumstances of our life. And believe me, hell's going to attack us. Uh, the, the more we pursue truth, the more it will try to unseat us and frustrate us and give us appearances, and it's just going to try to do everything to make us truly unhappy. So that's my presentation uh, to you about fantasy, that which is unreal, reality, that which is true. The Lord is isness, he's not wasness. He will always be present. He will always be fresh. He will always be presenting us with new thoughts and new ideas. Hell has the same old song. It has the same old fears. It has the same old things. Is it right? Is it right, says Habakkuk, that you do these things? And uh, so, anyway, I turn the floor over to you now. Yes. Well, I want to thank you for lifting up so much um, visual imagery of hell. I think it's something that we, we shy away from. Um, and it was particularly meaningful to me when you said about the, in hell, living in a dank cave, you think you're living in a palace. And that helped me resolve the question of, if God loves everybody, how can he let them live in hell? Well, he's letting them have what they love. And what they love is the illusion that they're in a palace. And one helpful ex um, example for me about what's hell about it if they love what they're doing is if you're, and I always use the example of a pickpocket. If you're a pickpocket and you're in a hell full of pickpockets, everyone's trying to pick everyone else's pocket. So it's extremely frustrating, but you get, you are getting what you love, which the Lord is allowing you to have. So it's so important what we love because we, as you're saying that we can love the illusion and we can live in that illusion and I think just on a daily basis when we think about things that we want we have to think about if I just want this for me is it really good because then because we can get easily into an illusion that it must be good for other people because I love it mm. but it's not necessarily good and it, it, it really uh, I think it was a really good um, reminder that the hell, hellish influences we are susceptible to will easily bring us the illusion of goodness, but it's not truly good. Thank you. And, and also, for me, as a writer, which I am, as a preparer of a sermon, I, I would not like to have that experience of sitting and try, keep trying to keep my candle lit. And the thing keep, and then the words, as fast as I write them, they disappear. Uh, that's that's a bit uh, unsettling. Uh, anyway, okay. Anyone else, please?
right. I, I, I'm not going to stop. I, I have a couple more uh, images here. Yes, Debbie. It's interesting to think about um, Susanna and you saying, you know, how is what makes you happy? And, you know, it's like, okay. So is what makes me happy what the Lord is teaching of loving the neighbor and loving the Lord? Or is what makes me happy loving the self, loving myself? So sometimes it's like, you know, when you're in a disagreement with somebody or you're having a little bit of a conflict, it's like, um, okay, so what side, what side of the line am I on there? Since how is really loving what makes you happy? Yeah, I, I grew up in a, in a very fundamental church, and hell was always presented as the Lord casting people into hell in this fiery, uh, uh, consuming fire. But I never had anybody stop to say the fire they're talking about is that passion of me, myself, and I that's doing the consuming. It's not the Lord casting. It's And then you, you remember the, the teachings that says that those who said, uh, oh, I want to go into heaven, and the Lord said, okay, we'll have an experiment. Do you remember that one? And he let them approach, and the closer they got to heaven, they couldn't breathe, and they dove back into hell where it was much more comfortable for them. So, uh, you know, I think we need to balance this thing of this is fantasy, this is reality. This is the rest of the story. You know, now you know, the, uh, and I do think... Uh, uh, Swedenborg has one of my favorite quotes. <clears throat> his friends were trying to talk him into giving up his pursuit of finding spiritual reality. Remember they said, y y you know, you're, you're a scientist, you're doing this, stay with that. Forget that talking about spiritual su stuff. And Swedenborg answered and said, I am obliged by my conscience to share these things. For what is the value of what one knows if others don't know? Isn't that a wonderful quote? I'm obliged by, by my conscience to pursue the things of the Lord. For what is it if I know something and I don't share it with you? Isn't that sad? So I do like that, that quote, uh, just, just this wonderful thing. I want to take doctrine and I want to make it a lie. Now this is not a commercial, but when I retired, uh, I made a promise between myself and the Lord. It was a little thing that happened in my study. I knew I was retiring. I knew I was no longer going to be teaching. I was teaching in the elementary school, the high school, the college, and the seminary. And all of a sudden, to give all of that up, I said, Lord, I'm going to make a promise every day I'm going to go, and I've got one of those bookcases this way, and it rotates, and I've got all the writings. And so I walk in, and I just, without any plan, I take one of them off, and I begin to read. And my, my agreement with the Lord is every day I'm going to look for something that I call a gem or a jewel. And when I find it, I go on Facebook, and I immediately write it and share it with others. Uh, just a, and the agreement was with the Lord is it has to be something positive. I don't want to talk about uh, latte that I had at Starbucks or whatever. Uh, it's got to be something that I found in the Word that is a gem and a jewel.
And it, it's, it's interesting how that uh, has grown. Uh, I started out with 20 people, 20, 25 people, and the list has grown up to 700. Uh, so something's working as far as the Lord. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I say to, to all of you, find something positive in the Lord's word and, uh, you know, share it. And so that little piece of reality, we've got enough fantasy in, in the world. Uh, let's get some reality. Well, I guess I just want to say it's kind of obvious that there's a lot of um, hellish influence in the world today, a lot of selfishness, uh, domination, uh, not caring for others, not caring to understand others. And it, it's a reminder to me when we you know, listen to uh, what the hells are like that when, you know, Deb, as Debbie brought up, it's, it's <coughs> what you love is yourself. Your reason is falsity because you are rationalizing that what is evil is good. And I just want to lift that up that that's why, because not only is there evil, but there's a rationalization that evil is good. That's why it's so hard to talk to someone and try to, even to try to understand when, I mean, we have such a divisive society right now and, and Part of it is it's very hard to have dialogue, and the, di the reason I feel that it's so hard to have dialogue is because there's a basic disconnect between an understanding of what is good. And the rationalization, I mean, we all know this, you know, if you really want to have that second piece of cake, you can certainly rationalize why it's no problem that you have type 1 diabetes and that you're going to go into sugar shop. You can rationalize it if you really want to. And that because rat, our reason is connected to our will, we have, the stronger we get in rationalizing our evils, the less likely we are going to listen to anyone else's interpretation of good. So hell is alive on earth. I'd love to hear, uh, ask this question. Would any of you be willing to pick up uh, Swedenborg's statement? His friends were saying, you know, if you really want to be popular, You've got it made if you stay in the field of science. And you're going to get riches, fame, and da-da-da-da. And he said, I'm obliged by my conscience to share. And I would love Freiburg to be a place where we have listened, we've reflected, and there's a sense of, I'm obliged to share. Not preachy, but just obliged to share what I have discovered. For what good is it, for what I know, to not be shared with others so that they know? And I love that isness uh, of, of uh, reality. Yes. Uh, I once watched, uh, listened to a couple of motivational tapes that sort of said a good thing as an adult is to share your experience with um, others, some of your experiences that are positive with others because the only thing younger people don't have is experience in certain areas. So sharing um, experiences or things that have happened to you is sometimes a good way of um, motivating or being a good listener and, and uh, talker even. Sometimes it's good to be enthusiastic about sharing your experience. It's not always a kind of a uh, selfish thing. 
Sometimes it really comes from the love of wanting to do just that. To share those experiences that younger people don't have as a teacher, that happens pretty naturally, you know, for you to do that. I'm amazed how many people have to read labels on food to make sure GMO or peanut butter is not in it. And yes, um, I was listening to um, Lois, and I think that is true. But I also listened to what God was saying about uh, being able to listen to the other person, and I'm a great. A believer in charity and I think listening is being charitable and as I taught small children I think if I just did all the talking I would learn nothing because I actually learn a lot from those children as well as as <coughs> Hopefully, giving them something, I also step back and receive something. And I think that, yes, we do need to learn and follow the doctrines and be able to maybe give something. But I think also by being a good listener, we also receive something, and, and I'm not, and, and it, we have a sense of the doctrines and what is true and what is loving. We'll discern, we won't, uh, because that person also is able to heal. That's, yes. Yes. It's interesting, you know, your, your thing about seeing books and I have to share it because it just, what flashed in my mind is, is that the Lord stands at the door and knocks and whoever opens to him, he comes in. You know, you think of Swedenborg, he didn't found a church, he didn't blast it from the housetops, he just put it so it was there. So that's, that's what kind of came to my mind when he said that. He's obliged to share it, but in a very soft way. In the writings, uh, thank you, you just reminded me, the writings say, uh, uh, pr present a picture people were walking down the street and they saw this house and they were told this house was very special and they went to the window and looked in and they saw a box in it and I guess there was sort of colors coming out but they never went to the door, opened the door to go in uh, but those who were wanting to find the Lord opened the door, went in, opened the box and inside the box was filled with gorgeous gems you know, so uh, do I want to, as a person who wants to find isness, am I willing to go to that door, open it, and go in it and open the box, or am I just willing to look out from outside, looking through the window? Uh, I, I want to be the, I want to be an inquisitor. I want to go in and, and then come out and share. Well, if I uh, am looking at the clock on the wall, I'm about two minutes early on stopping. Oh, yes, sir. Since you come in, you have to turn up your head. Oh, okay. So um, I, I want to um, take advantage of your encyclopedic knowledge of these terms, if I might. Could you tell me what you mean by the term uses? Okay. 
I, mean, I know it's slightly off topic, but it would be helpful to me if you took a moment to, okay. because it's, I, I kind of remember the term, but I would love it if you would. Well, serving uses would be, A, is it something I'm doing that's loving the Lord? Is it something that I'm doing that's loving the neighbor? And it's, is it something to, to help? I think sometimes where a child gets to me most is when they're hurting and little tears are running down their face and uh, wanting to go over. But I end up hugging them and getting more from the hug than I think. But, so those uses of trying to help them, calm them. But how many times do we see a friend of ours who's hurting and we don't know what to do, what to say, but we have that feeling, I, I want to I be useful. Lord, flow in, help me to be... Oh yeah, but here's a better one. I remember counseling a couple who were thinking of getting a divorce, and I had them come into my office, and they were talking and talking, and I, I was just listening, and I didn't have a whole lot to say because of their talking. And at the end of the session, I thought, I really wasn't a very, very good counselor. They came back a week later and said, you helped us more than you'll ever know. And I hadn't said much. But what they were appreciating was that my use as a priest or a minister was I gave them a time to talk and I listened without interrupting. So then, then you, you mentioned that, that their the hell realm, is that the proper term? That, um, uh, they, they, they must perform uses. And I thought that was interesting. So it doesn't necessarily sound like uses are always... Um, reality-based? Well, I think the use is that, that the Lord, he, he doesn't want them to just con, con, continue to live in their fantasy world of do nothing. So he's, the, the Lord is always, it says, even trying to lift those who are in the lowest hells, he's trying to lift them to a little higher hell. Okay. So the performing uses is not just to be mean, but it's to do a little bit of lifting rather than, you know, being in that squalor. Thank you. And as Michael was saying about teaching, that you receive a lot from the person and you learn. In doing uses, you help others, but you also are lifted up by that. And I think that's what the Lord attempts with those in hell, is to give them uses to lift them up. And I know um, it's not, I mean, I don't know that it's payout general practice, but I've heard of uh, people working with young people with depression, that one of the best things for them to do is go out and help others. You get them out helping someone else, and it gets you out of that cycle of whatever your ego is doing in your mind, and bring in, lifts you up simply by the, the doing for others and, and seeing their response to that. about learning from your children. In second grade, the old-fashioned way of teaching math was teaching a way to do it and making sure every single one of those children did it exactly your way, the, or the way that you are prescribed to put up on the board. Whereas lots of times the new way of teaching is to have a child raise their hand and say, well, I didn't get it that way, Mrs. McCurdy. I got it this way. And you validate that. You say, that's wonderful. Did everybody see that? And then someone else raises their hand and says, well, I didn't get it that either one of those ways. I got it this way. And 
validating that. And so in a way, the teacher is learning a different way than she had presented. And everybody in the room is picking up maybe that their way is okay to think is a good thing, to find another way is, is perfectly fine, that it's, that it's good. Okay. Well, thank you for being good listeners and participants. I appreciate that very much. And uh, dare, so what? Dare, <laughs> dare to be a pursuer of what's real and ignoring that which is not real. Thank you. Oh, that's right. And I tried to get my hand out of the pocket. <laughs>